We're continuing through John, have been for a number of weeks. Last week, a one-off sermon on membership, uh, but back into John 7, 37 to 52. Uh, one encouragement uh, I am often glad to receive from the church, and, and I find uh, being part of this church family incredibly encouraging, uh, is people from time to time uh, come up to me and say um, that my preaching has improved, uh, which is nice. Um, I'm sure many of you, and I am hoping that this is a trend that continues, and I'm delighted and pretty excited to say that this morning uh, I'm going to reach a new level of preaching. For the very first time in my life, this is a sermon with three points all starting with the same letter. And not just any letter, but the most sermon Christian of all letters is P. Uh, and so in this sermon, uh, there are three points. Uh, I do have to confess, though, at the start of the sermon preparing process, these three points seem to come up quite sort of straight away. They seemed less important as I went on, but I've kept them in here because I was so committed to having them. But please don't take them to heart too much. Uh, the reason behind these points is that through our passage, there's three main sections, and they are all ways that people miss exactly who Jesus is and what he offers. The three things that stop them are first, performative religious activity. The second, and these are, you know, uh, I've come up with these, they're a little put together. Perplexedness is the second one. And the third one is pride and prejudice. I heard a murmur of, is perplexedness a word? I'm not sure. (laughs) But I think we know what it means. They are confused. Anyway, the first one uh, is performative religious activity, and it's what we find in verses 37 to 39. Uh, They have come uh, together uh, to celebrate the Feast of Booths, and they're on the last day of it. If you were at church a couple weeks ago, uh, you will know a bit about the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, as that was uh, also the setting for our last passage. And here they're on the last day. I'll read verse 37 to 39 to us. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the last day of this feast is actually today in the calendar. Uh, the Jewish people across the world are celebrating the Feast of Booths, uh, and today, October 16th, is the final day of it. It's a festival celebrating God's provision to them in the wilderness. After God brought them out of Egypt, and they lived uh, in tents, they had the tabernacle. And so still today, they celebrate this festival by sleeping in tents. They perform uh, different rituals throughout the week of this festival. And one of them, and an important one for us to consider as we look at our passage today, is a ritual they have involving water. Uh, A Jewish history website talks about it like this. It was at this time that the temple priest would lead his own parades. He would exit the temple through the water gate holding a golden pitcher, and he would walk several hundred yards to the pool of Siloam to fill the pitcher with water. With musicians in tow, the priest would gather the water, all would march back to the temple, and the priest would take the water from the pitcher and spill it on the altar where the animals were sacrificed. They practiced this in remembrance of what happened when Moses got the water from the rock. 
uh, in Numbers 20, 11, and I'll read that too. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. So for generations and generations, for hundreds of years, they celebrate this practice, remembering God's provision of water for them when they were close to death. They're celebrating God's gift of life through his gift of water. And so it's into that context that Jesus says these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. They're using water in their ritual, in their ceremony, to celebrate God's gift of life through water. And then right in front of them there is God himself offering them living water. This is perfect for them. This is the one that they have been waiting for. The one that this practice is all about, pointing forwards to somebody who would come and provide this living water as they reflect back on this gift of water that God had given. And right in front of them, as they celebrate, they have this gift right there, Jesus Christ. And some recognize who he might be, but many come away confused and divided. In the past three weeks, I had the pleasure of becoming an uncle for the first time. Uh, usually, our family group chat is, to be honest, and no one in my family is going to listen to this, it's quite boring. The, so there's three guys and three girls in our family, uh, and the girls put in pictures and stories about their lives, and they, they talk about those things. Uh, and the guys, we, we sometimes manage to put a thumbs up in. Uh, sometimes there's a good football match, we might make a comment. But since uh, my niece has been born, it's actually been quite exciting. Uh, pretty much every day, my sister uh, sends in a photo of her baby. Uh, you find out that it's grown a couple pounds in the last couple days. Uh, you see pictures of the, the baby all dressed up to go out, of playing with toys, of all the different things. And honestly, I just really love it. Uh, I have not yet, though, got to see my niece in person. Uh, but next Friday, I'm going to go and get to meet Olivia for the first time. And uh, it's incredibly exciting to get to go and see her. It would be absolutely crazy, though, if I turned up at my sister's house, took one look at Olivia, and just went back to looking at the photos again, to thinking the photos are what it's really all about. To sit right there, within touching distance of Olivia, and spend my time marveling at the pictures of Olivia would be crazy. The festival they are celebrating, the rituals they have with the water, are pictures of who God is. They remind the Jewish people of what he is like, of how good this God is. But they're just pictures. In front of them, they have that very God himself who gives life. But they're too focused on the pictures, and some fail to recognize that this God is right there in front of them. They perform the religious activity which is a good thing. It's a festival instituted by God, but instituted by God to point them towards him, not to get them too sucked into just carrying on with the festival. There's a danger as we look on that for all of us too. It's very easy to get so tied up doing our religious things, good things, but we can miss actually truly knowing Jesus. You could come to this church for years and sit in a service, you could send your kids off to children's church, could give your money, give your time, serve on some different rotors, 
and yet not truly or not fully know him. All these things that we do, good things, can just become empty religious activities that we tick off a list to feel like we are doing the right thing, but a genuine relationship with Jesus can escape us. A way to diagnose this is to reflect on how we, uh, how, how we reflect and speak about a church service afterwards. We often just talk about whether we liked the songs, uh, whether the service was too long, whether the service was too short. That one was just a joke. I don't think anyone's ever said that about a service here. But we reflect on so many of these things about the service, but often our first thought is not, how did we meet with Jesus this morning? Do we feel like we managed to really worship him and discover more of who he is? How did he speak to us? How was he present with us this morning? How are we delighted to worship him together? We can become like these Jewish people at the festival and completely miss Jesus because we're too stuck in just performing religious activity that we forget who it's actually all about. All of this, all of that was all about Jesus. And what Jesus offers the people in his words to them is not just something that's going to fulfill their hopes that they've had for generations as they celebrate this, but he's far going to exceed them. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus is fulfilling and mirroring the story of Moses getting the water from the rock. In that story, the water came out and all the people and the livestock could drink. But he also exceeds that. Because the water that Jesus provides is living water that does not run out. As Moses and the people and the livestock drank, they drank their water. But they'd have to come back time and time and again to get more water for life. With Jesus, it's a gift of living, eternal water that never runs out. And it's also not a water uh, that we have to trek to fetch, but water that Jesus says flows from inside our hearts. This living water is eternal because this living water, as Jesus tells us in verse 39, is the Holy Spirit who is eternally God. The Holy Spirit who in creation was hovering over the waters. The Holy Spirit through whom Jesus, the Son of God, is conceived. The Holy Spirit who is described in the Nicene Creed as the Lord, the giver of life. The Holy Spirit who wakes us up from a spiritual slumber to be alive in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, one of the persons of the Godhead that we will worship forevermore. This is the Holy Spirit that Jesus offers as a gift to anyone who comes and drinks. Anyone who is thirsty and comes to believe in Jesus. And we are all so desperately thirsty. And the reason we are thirsty is because we often just drink the water that we are not designed to drink. Imagine you're out at sea, you're stranded on a boat. The water in the sea might look so appealing. You might be so thirsty, you think, I'll just take a little bit. But you know that it'll just make you thirsty again and it will not satisfy. We were not designed to drink salty water. As humans, we were not designed either to live in a sinful world. We were designed, as we see in Genesis as we were created, to live in close communion with gods, our holy and our perfect gods. And so as we look around the world that has been broken and marred by sin, there are so many things that make us thirsty for more. 
as we look across the world and see countries in turmoil and war, or as we look close to home and we see family members in hospital, as we see life be hard, as we see family rejecting Jesus, we look around and see the world was not meant to be like this. We were not meant to live like this, and so, so much of this world and the air we breathe is salty water that leaves us thirsty for more. And so often, rather than realizing it is Jesus we are thirsting for, we attempt to satisfy with just more and more of this salty water. To look out and think, if I just get this, then I'll be satisfied. Not realizing that all this world offers will not satisfy, but will leave a thirst, but a thirst that is quenched in Jesus. So Jesus says to you and to us, whoever you are, if you are thirsty, come to him and drink. You were made to drink the water that he gives. One of the theologians in the early church, Augustine, wrote these words. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our hearts are thirsty until they drink the water that Jesus gives. When the Israelites in the wilderness getting the water from the rock, uh, they would have to physically go uh, to get that water. Jesus completely flips that around. And says that rather than you go somewhere to get this water, actually this water, these rivers of living water will flow from your heart. Uh, heart is the translation that probably carries the most meaning for us. Uh, the word is most often translated in the New Testament as womb, uh, but that would be a pretty weird saying of Jesus. Uh, the, the word is most literally belly, or perhaps innermost being. It means at the very core of a person when somebody comes to Jesus and drinks, becomes this living water, which is the Holy Spirit. That is a completely radical transformation of what is in somebody's innermost being before. It means that the very core of somebody who comes to believe in Jesus is the Holy Spirit. For those listening, it's a complete shift of their thinking. Many of them will have traveled from long distances over days to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. They would have thought, this is the place where God's presence is. This is where we must come to worship him. You might remember the story we had a few weeks ago in John 4, with Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. And her impression is that there has to be a specific place that you worship Jesus. Jesus flips it around. With this gift of the Spirit, God's presence is no longer confined to a place that we go to, but it goes wherever we go because the Holy Spirit lives in us. So as we go later on from this place to work or church or home, God is there too. And as you consider the idea of our innermost being, I imagine our innermost being, the core of who we are, is actually often something we're glad other people don't see. In there we think that some of our deepest and darkest thoughts are contained. Some of our attitudes that we are glad other people do not know. And maybe we feel glad that uh, on a Sunday at least we can come to church and present a kind of spruced up picture of ourselves just displaying the good bits that will make us fit in. But the reality is far different. When you drink of the living water and the Holy Spirit flows through you, that old innermost being, 
An innermost being set on sin and opposed to God is completely transformed. You gain a new heart, as David prays in Psalm 51. And that new heart's utmost desire is for God. Now, of course, there is still much within us that sins. But fundamentally, if you are a Christian, if you have come to Jesus and drank this living water, your identity is found in the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That though you sin, that does not define your identity. Your identity is defined by Jesus' gift of eternal life. The other part of that ceremony that I described earlier on was the pouring of the water over the altar. Now, the altar where they sacrificed animals to make themselves at one with God, to be their atonement for sin. And in the ceremony, they pour water over it. Jesus, once again, completely flips that around. Not in this passage, but a few months later, in the same city of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ himself becomes that sacrifice. And rather than water being poured on Jesus Christ, water flows from Jesus Christ. Because as he dies on that cross, in his death, we receive that gift of life. As the water and the blood flow from his side. And that sacrifice, sacrifice is vastly different. This one in our passage is one they repeated time and time again. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is a one-time sacrifice sufficient for all people and for all time. And because Jesus died on that cross, we can drink this living water that he gives. Our sin, not just the things that we do, but what is formerly our innermost being, that had kept us from God, is wiped away. Out of love, Jesus Christ goes to that cross to lay down his life for us, that we may gain the life that he gives us through his death. The people in Jerusalem performed their religious activity for centuries, but they missed that it was all about Jesus, who came to fulfill it and to exceed it to show them that what they were waiting for is him. That leads us on uh, to the second point, and points two and three are much shorter. Uh, the second point being perplexness, or perplexity, or um, if you're an English teacher, you're probably feeling incredibly annoyed right now, um, but perplexness. Basically, the people, as they hear Jesus' words, they are confused. I will pick up from verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So as the crowd listen to Jesus, they have very different reactions. Some thinking this could be who he says he is, some thinking this guy is crazy, and some wanting to arrest him. Uh, but what's odd is that we don't seem to get an impression that Jesus has gone anywhere by this point. Uh, John, through his gospel, is pretty good at telling us where Jesus goes, if he goes up a mountain or he crosses a lake. But we can probably assume that Jesus is still right there in the festival, and yet they're talking about Jesus, wondering about him, yet not actually speaking to him. Because their question actually has a really easy fix. 
They didn't think he could be the Christ because the Christ was to come from Bethlehem, but they saw Jesus as from Galilee. And it's a really important question. If the person claiming to be the Christ is not actually from Bethlehem, then they can't be the Christ or Scripture's testimony would be false. But all they need to do is either ask Jesus or Mary for Jesus' birth certificate that will show them that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He is fulfilling the expectations of who the Christ would be. But because they talk about Jesus, but fail to talk to Jesus, they linger in division and conclusion and confusion, remaining perplexed. Now there have been for 2,000 years endless debates about who Jesus is, what he says, and how he calls us to live. And we, I, these are hugely important things. We owe a huge amount of gratitude to the fact that these debates have happened and continue to happen. There are so many important figures in church history uh, who have spent their whole lives often having to sacrifice their lives to give us the truth that we are now able to uh, hear and celebrate and sing and read. We still together, uh, as a church, seek to listen to what Jesus is saying and figure out how he calls us to live today. And so earlier in the year, as we did our transgender sermon series, and we did the book study, what we're doing there is we are together trying to figure out what is Jesus saying and how is he calling us to live. But it's very easy to get so caught up in these big theological questions or defeating our theological opponents and completely miss actually having a relationship with Jesus. An example of what that may be, as you listen to this sermon, or any other sermon at this church or any church, I hope at some part of your mind, there is a question of, is this true and faithful to the Bible? It's a specific call that Paul gives to the church in 1 Thessalonians. But there's also an attitude we can come to with a sermon or to anything we hear, of becoming sort of a heresy hunter, of just listening to a sermon to find things that we disagree with, rather than asking the question, what is Jesus saying to me today? We can get so caught up in heresy hunting that we forget to listen to what Jesus is telling us. Or perhaps as we hear the word salvation mentioned, our first thought goes to the sort of Calvinism-Arminianism debate and doesn't go to reveling in the wonder of the salvation that Jesus gives. Perhaps we get more excited in conversation with another Christian when we hear them say the right pastors and theologians that we also like. Maybe we get more excited by that than when they talk about Jesus. It's easy to talk about Jesus and to miss talking to Jesus as the crowd did. The third P is pride and prejudice from verse 45 onwards. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The chief priests and the Pharisees are angry 
they are angry, first of all, that nobody has been able to seize and judge Jesus. They are angry because what of Jesus says. And so they talk down to these officers that have failed to arrest Jesus. They basically call them dum-dums who don't know the law. It's sort of a live-action remake of any Twitter debate ever. The chief priests and Pharisees are convinced that Jesus cannot be the Christ because he's born in Galilee. The same question that the crowd had before. Those in Jerusalem, like the chief priests and Pharisees, looked down on those in Galilee. They say, as we read, no prophet arises in Galilee and certainly not the Christ. Pride makes them arrogant, thinking that everyone else's claims about Jesus are ridiculous. Their prejudice towards the people of Galilee makes them think that there's no way that a prophet or the Christ could come from there. And so they dismiss Jesus. If you were to send the chief priests and Pharisees out on a mission to scout out the Christ, they would have put a big X through Galilee on a map straight away and laughed at you for suggesting that they may go there. Why look for the Christ in Galilee, they may say. A few months later, a similar question is asked by a couple of men to a few of Jesus' female disciples. They ask, why do you look for the living among the dead? I imagine as the stone was rolled over the tomb, hell and all those who hated Jesus were overjoyed. Proud of what they had done, they had managed to execute Jesus and finish him off. He was done and dusted, and so they could dismiss him. But after those question, that question, why do you look for the living among the dead, we hear three beautiful words. We hear the words, he is risen. Though it looked to the whole world like there was nothing good could come out of Jesus being in the tomb. There, three days later, he stands in glory. He stands resurrected. They dismissed Jesus, thinking he was dead. But Jesus defeated that death and came back to life. And because he came back to life, we can trust that the water he gives is eternal living water. That he is the one who has the power over life and death. The next passage along from our story is Jesus calling himself the light of the world. You might see in your Bible you have a story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, but many manuscripts won't count that. And so Jesus' next words calling himself the light of the world. I am the one who gives living water. I am the light of the world. I wonder as John heard those words, what he thought of them. He obviously thought they were pretty important because he wrote them down. But later on in John's life, I think John realized a lot more of the weight behind these words. As John receives the revelation from God, he sees Jesus truly as the one from whom this living water comes and the one who is the light of the world. From Revelation 22, John writes these, this in the first five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb of God, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Because Jesus rose again, that is our hope of a certain future that we can have. This Jesus who we worship as the one who gives us living water. This Jesus we worship as the light of the world will be the one that we worship forevermore. And so to all of us this morning... I echo these words of Jesus again. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you thirst, as you look around the world and hope for more, as you thirst, if you look at yourself, and you are not quite what you would like to be. If you thirst, come to Jesus and drink. This is for anyone, your first time in church or your thousandth time in church. The offer goes out to you. No matter what you have done or what you haven't done, if you are thirsty, come to Jesus and drink. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this gift of living water. We thank you that you are so good to us that you give your Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, to flow from our innermost being. Lord, thank you that you transform our innermost being from being set on sin and opposed to you to absolutely loving you, that you give us a new heart. Lord, forgive us for when we uh, do all these religious activities and forget you. Or we we wonder about you and fail to talk to you. Lord, help us in all that we do to not miss Jesus, but to recognize him and to know him as Lord. And Lord, thank you that that is possible because you sent your son Jesus to die. That that death brings life for us that we have hope of a certain future because Jesus rose again. And Lord, we look forward and long for that day where we celebrate Jesus Christ and the throne from which the water of life flows and Jesus Christ who will be the light. Amen.